You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it with you, sir? I'm actually going to correct that a little bit, David. Uh, that'll oh. be professor of English. What? Yes, indeed, listeners, you're hearing it here first. I uh, got the letter from the president this week. I will be, as of July 1st, Professor of English at Emmanuel College. Now you can say whatever you want. <laughs> so what, is, what does that mean at your school? Are you unfireable, or do you not have to do teaching evaluations, or what? Uh, no, it's just a pay raise. Everything else pretty much stays as it is. Is it a substantial pay raise? Uh, I mean, it, it's one of the two actual pay raises we get, other than the, you know, incremental year-by-year bump. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little extra cash. Gilmore's up into seven figures. <laughs> as long as we count the ones after the decimal point, yeah. <laughs> Change counts. Those are numbers. Awesome. Making well, those Jeffersons. Nice. Well, asking the questions about what goes along with being a full professor at Emanuel College is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm good. Jefferson is on the $2 bill. Is that the joke? Uh, I was trying to make a nickel joke. Oh. Oh. But See, uh, yeah, now, now that you say too. that, I, I, I should have said what? Roosevelt? <laughs> What's Roosevelt yeah. on? Yeah. He's just on the dime, right? Dimes. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's on a coin, yeah. but not on a bill. Oh, I right. see. I see. Right. So there would be no confusion, except I'm confused. <laughs> well, you know, uh, listeners, we do not uh, script our jokes ahead of, the, ahead of recording. Well, even the Jeffersons would work. You could be like, I'm making the high twos of dollars. Anyway, yeah, it's not. I, th- I think I'll stick to the English professor gig. Fair enough. So, before we get into today's topic, which is some uh, some essays by the the revered Dorothy Sayers on creativity and theology, what is new on the network? Michael, you've got a Profiles interview coming, don't you? I do. One of my favorite that I've recorded in recent years. Uh, it's with Abigail Ryan Favale, Favale <laughs> who, um, who's a Catholic convert, uh, actually responsible for uh, a big fight you and I had a few years ago in a listener feedback uh, episode. She, she's the one who wrote the email that got us yelling at each other. So it's come full circle, and I interviewed her about her book. I really enjoyed that interview. I enjoyed the book, and everybody should listen to it. Very good. We've also got a Christian feminist podcast episode on women in Star Trek. I'm looking forward to listening to that one. And a sectarian review on the 
What am I, am I reading this right? The Jewish God Question. Yes, indeed. The Jewish God Question. It is a recent book. Uh, Danny Anderson is interviewing the author. Okay, okay. See, I was, I was trying to figure out whether it was questions about the Jewish God, or the Jewish God has questions, or And it's or, actually choice C, a book called The Jewish God Question. There you go. Much clearer. If he, if he, so the, the things he's going to be asking are the Jewish God question questions? Yes, questions about the uh, question of the Jewish God question. And I just right. ask a question about the questions about the question of the Jewish God question. Dude. It's like Inception up in here. Questionception. Anyways. So you recently had a Profiles interview, Michael, um, about a collection of Dorothy Sayers' essays. So I figure you're prepared to give us a biographical sketch to start off with. Hey, David, would you mind making all of your episodes things I just did a Profiles episode about so I don't have to prepare? Um, I... Like, could your I next could, episode could... be about Abigail Ryan Favale's book so I don't have to read anything? Well, we'll see. We'll see what, what can be done about that. But, seriously... What facets of Sayer's life and work are most useful for us to be keeping in mind as we work through these three essays? Well, I would encourage listeners to go listen to Carol Vanderhoof's biography of Sayers in that episode because she goes into more detail than I'm about to, and she certainly is more knowledgeable than I am. Sayers is the daughter of an Anglican clergyman. Uh, she had some wild times as a young adult. Notably, she had a, a child out of wedlock. And then later she returned to the church. Uh, she's well known as a writer, fairly well known. She she wrote uh, really a, a wide variety of genre. Her uh, her first book was a book of poems, but she also wrote mystery novels and stories. She wrote a number of religious plays, including "The Man Who Would Be King," which is a cycle of plays about Jesus that was originally broadcast over the BBC. And then she also wrote a number of occasional essays about a wide variety of topics, almost always related to Christianity. And so I think one thing important to keep in mind about those essays. She is speaking officially rather than personally, necessarily. She sees her job as speaking the truth of the Christian faith. And, and there's some confusion on her part as to whether she necessarily believed everything when she first spoke it. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's helpful to think about these essays a little bit like you might think about the man who would be king plays. If there's self-expression in these essays, self-expression beyond the very identifiable authorial voice of the essays, if there's any other self-expression, it's deep in the text. It would be silly to say she doesn't believe these things, but they're not exactly proceeding from her believing them, if that makes sense. So, so I mean, one question I asked uh, Carol on that episode is when Sayers returned to the church, and there's not an easy answer for that because it happens gradually over time, and she seems to be being convinced by the things she's writing is the impression I get. That's really interesting. Um, I wish that I had, uh, along with the essays that we're looking at, I wish that I, I'd also um, taken the time to see when she wrote each of these. Um, I think I, I think I have that information. Give me just a second. Um, I, I can tell you that the image of God is a chapter from The Mind of the Maker. Ellen cut all this right, stuff up. Right, right. I mean, it... it I have a very hard time uh, reading the mind of the maker as as a work by someone who's not entirely certain 
about whether they believe what they're writing because she's using um, Christian dogma so constructively. At well, that point. well, and and again, I mean, it's it's dogma she's using. So she's she's building off of received truths of the Christian faith. I I, I don't want to overstate it. I don't I don't I'm not saying she wasn't a Christian, but I'm saying. Her conversion happens over a long period of time and does not necessarily predate the things she's writing about. So Mind of the Maker is 1941 and Toward a Christian Aesthetic is 1944. So Michael would be something like what we see in uh, McIntyre's After Virtue where he doesn't actually convert to Catholicism until after he's written that book. But when you read that book, it's hard to imagine anyone but a Catholic writing it. Yeah, I would I would say that's true. Although she, even more than he, is is operating out of um, out of a received tradition. Uh, she, she I, I believe, saw her job as being to express the Christian faith, not necessarily to express her own beliefs. But again, take that with a grain of salt. I'm not saying she wasn't a Christian or anything like that. Very good. Yeah, uh, she she does, especially in in the the essays that are focusing much more on explaining. Um, creeds and defending the notion of creeds. Uh, I can I can see that really what you're the point you're making, Michael, much more strongly because uh, one of the things I, I, re- I remember for one of the, one of the essays she wrote, um, being taken aback at people's responses to uh, one of her plays because they were treating her as if she'd she'd come up with all of the with with some some kind of wacky avant garde personal theology stuff. When, in, as far as she was saying, she was just elucidating the Apostles' Creed or Chalcedon or something like that. Yeah, and that, that's the that's the impression I get with a great deal of her work. And if you've read *The Man Who Would Be King*, the the various plays in that cycle, you'll it'll be a familiar move to you. I mean, th- those those plays are essentially the New Testament updated into what was then contemporary language. Not so contemporary anymore. All right. And dear listeners, I do recommend that you go back and listen to that profiles interview. It was it, it was excellent. Well, Nathan, uh, the first essay that I want to discuss is titled "The Image of God," and it explores that familiar topic, the image of God in humanity, which Genesis one says we've got. So, what sort of suggestions have been made about the nature of this image in Genesis, and? Where does Sayer's proposal fit in that conversation? Right, and part of the uh, dispute, of course, is the verb to use. Uh, Is the image of God something that we have, or something that we are, or something that we aspire to be? Uh, All of these have been uh, possibilities in the history of theology. Uh, A fairly common one uh, that you see, um, you know, in some medieval texts, and certainly in Renaissance texts, is that the image of God has to do with a certain capacity a power that we have that other animals don't have. It usually gets identified with reason or with language or something like that. Uh, we also get, you know, takes on the image of God that focus less on the uh, capacity of the individual and more on the social nature of humanity. Uh, it's simultaneously borrowing from Aristotle's notion of the zoon politicon, the animal that lives in towns, uh, and the notion that the Trinity is a relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Recent, you know, biblical study scholarship uh, has tended to focus on the place of images in temples uh, in the ancient Near East and suggesting that the human being's place in earth is analogous to the place of the image of a god 
uh, in a Levantine temple so that the human being is the sacred object on earth that is not to be uh, destroyed or damaged at risk of grave punishment. So where Sayers fits in with all of this uh, is that she takes Genesis 1 as sort of her template and says uh, the narrative that we find there in Genesis 1 doesn't tell us a whole lot about the character or the activity of God. What it does insist on uh, is that God is a maker, uh, Bereshith bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. Uh, and so, you know, what she focuses on is that uh, the image of God uh, as we find it in human beings, is the is the making, all right? I, I, I almost shifted into some abstract nouns that probably don't fit with her argument. Uh, when human beings make, we are the image of God. And she expands that notion of making, of course, beyond uh, what we'd find in an art history textbook. She talks about any kind of manufacturing, any kind of agriculture, any kind of family life. Uh, what we do in the world is alter it, uh, according to our will, according to unintended consequences, according to involuntary things, wherever we go, uh, we are making the world otherwise than it was. Uh, so that is, you know, for the purposes of this essay, what it means to be the image of God, it is to create. Uh, Michael, uh, are, are there any bits that I, I should have put in there? Well, I, I thought it was interesting. She said that the Imago Dei is shared by men and women so that any any picture of God is aggressively masculine is an unbiblical picture. And I, I imagine she must have had the muscular Christianity of the generation before her in mind with that. Uh, but if you're or the Sistine if, Chapel. Yeah. But if you're if you're thinking if you're thinking of God as a uh, as a masculine entity full stop, uh, you you're missing the Imago Dei, because women share in it just as much as men. And likewise, if you have a, a fully feminine God. Right, But right. That's, that seems rather less common in Western culture. One point that I think uh, she draws out towards the end of the essay, and because of um, uh, she wrote this, if, if I remember rightly, this is one of the opening chapters of In the Mind of the Maker. Um, it's chapter two. Okay. So one of the things that the very end of this essay does is make the move that the rest of her book follows up on, um, which is to suggest that theologians and artists need to talk to each other and that artists thinking carefully about how they create, what the process of, of creating is, um, have something to tell, something constructive to tell theologians, um, but also that theologians who have thought carefully um, about uh, the character of God as revealed in scripture um, have therefore things to tell the artist about what it means to be made in the image of that God in the ways that they exercise their creativity. So that, that move at the very end of the book of the, of the essay, um, and the, the kind of interdisciplinary move, so to speak, uh, I think is is one of the really interesting and distinctive ones that she's particularly prepared to do um, because of that well because of the biographical facts that you that that you walked us through Michael um, she is she is a working author pretty much her entire uh, a working writer pretty much her entire adult life and but she is also has this this strong personal interest 
and is is recruited at various points to also um, speak as uh, a voice for the church and a voice particularly for church dogma. I think it's interesting she wants the theologians to take cues from the artists because in Torta Christian Aesthetic, she seems to come very close to me to saying that artists aren't really very good at talking about their work in general. That, that when you ask an artist to come up with a theory of what she's doing, she's probably just going to adapt her technique to whatever the reigning theory is. So I, I wonder, I wonder how much that sort of artist would have to say to a theologian, even. Although she does distinguish between the art as art and then what the artist would have to say about it, right? So she says that Aeschylus has a power that the man Aeschylus probably wouldn't be able to explain. Right, but that that would mean that would mean that the artist probably wouldn't have that much to say to the theologian, and what the theologian should be doing is looking at the art itself. Well, that's Eugene kind of what I Peterson took this style. Oh, that, that's kind of what I took this essay to be saying, though. Are you? Did you hear her saying that we should listen to that theologians should listen to artists when they talk about art or when they do art? Uh, I understood it to be the former. Let me. I'm flipping through pages here, as I'm sure everybody can annoyingly hear. Annoyingly. <laughs> as, you, as you rustle your papers before the the before the microphone, like Rush Limbaugh. Does he do that? I've never listened to Rush Limbaugh, I'm glad to say. Um, spent spent goodly years of my teenagerhood um, getting car rides with folks who did. And yes, yes, in fact, he does. This is the penultimate paragraph of the image of God. If all this is true, then it is to the creative artist that we should naturally turn for an opinion of what is meant by those creedal formulas that deal with the nature of the creative mind. Actually, we seldom seem to consult them in the matter. Poets have indeed often communicated in their own mode of expression truths identical with the theologian's truths. But just because of the difference in the modes of expression, we often fail to see the identity of the statements. The artist Fair is enough. not. Yeah, so it's, it seems to me that she's she's asking the artist to to theorize. Right. Which... I th I think I read the other essay back into this one. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder. Right. I wonder if she just changed her mind in the intervening three years. I don't know, but she might also be thinking about people, um, I mean, she does say poets, so she might also be thinking about poets who were particularly um, particularly conscious of, of how their creativity worked. I, I'll, um, I'll also say that in Toward a Christian Aesthetic, despite her takedown of Platonism, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, I know, she does seem to adopt the viewpoint that uh, the poets are more or less what Plato said they were, this kind of idiot savant that that goes into a trance and produces. So the, the poet is aware of the technique, but not really of the theory. That, right. that, and that seems broadly Platonic to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, listeners can go back to our episode on Plato's dialogue, the Eon, and hear a conversation about that. Cool. Well, before we hop into two, uh, I, I know I know, I, I love Tordic... I'm looking forward to talking about toward a Christian aesthetic, but before we do that, um, there is a, uh, kind of a middle term between this image of God essay and that essay, which is, uh, the connections that she develops between creativity, the image of God and the Trinity in particular. Um, she sketches it out a little bit in a couple of pages of Toward a Christian Aesthetic. It's something that she spends a whole book on in Mind of the Maker. 
but could you say a little bit, Michael, about how this image of God in human creativity is a distinctively Trinitarian image for her? I can try. You may remember that in the interview with Carol Vanderhoof, I confessed to not really understanding this argument very well. So yeah. maybe everybody should just go listen to what she has to say, but I'll give it a shot. So there's three parts of human creativity that correspond to the three members of the Trinity. First, we have the creative idea, which corresponds to God the Father. She says this creative idea is, quote, passionless, timeless, beholding the whole work complete at once, the end and the beginning. So it precedes any kind of material work, the creative idea, like you have an idea for a poem. This happens before you even put it into words, maybe, certainly before you write it down. But it doesn't precede the creative energy, which is the second um, the, the second member of the creative trinity. The, the creative energy corresponds to God the Son. She says it is, quote, begotten of that idea, working in time from the beginning to the end, with sweat and passion, being incarnate in the bonds of matter. Um, so the idea here is that the, the energy always thinks of the work as a cohesive whole in the idea. So the, the energy somehow sees the entire work in the, the idea itself, uh, which I, this is the part I have a lot of trouble explaining. And maybe if I understood Trinitarian theology better, I would have an easier time, um, with this, but, she, she also says, maybe maybe this will clear it up. The idea of the book is a thing in itself quite apart from its awareness or its manifestation in energy, though it still remains true that it cannot be known as a thing in itself except as the energy reveals it. So it, it seems like what she's saying is the idea exists but can't be formulated without the energy, just as, oh, I don't want to know if I want to make the Trinitarian argument there, just as God himself cannot be seen, perhaps, without God the Son. God the Father can't be seen himself without God the Son? Is that is that a is that a heretical way to put that? I mean it sounds in some ways as if she's just saying again what John 1 says that you know no one has seen God at any time but God the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father he has revealed him. Yeah, um, so so I mean maybe maybe that's what it is. The the creative energy reveals the creative idea. And and going along with this is the third member, the creative power. That's that's God the Spirit. Quote, the meaning of the work and its response in the lively soul. So the creative power hands the work back to the artist as an object of study. The 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 work has been produced and and now the creative power is the the artist's connection back to it, I suppose. Like the, like the Godhead, these three entities are distinct but inseparable. Uh, and they don't have to be actually materialized, but they want to be materialized. So the, the work doesn't have to exist physically, um, but that's what it wants. All three of these are present before, before the work is complete. Yeah, so so that the the, the energy is not necessarily something that requires incarnation that that the sun is not created because of incarnation but that incarnation is a kind of logical entailment of the relationship of sun energy to father idea something like that does this idea make sense to you david because i i find it kind of cutesy but i don't find it terribly illuminating for how art works one of the and We'll, we'll, we'll see what your mileage is on this, Nathan. But 
I think one of the things that she's doing is kind of modding um, Augustine's psychological analogy for the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Um, uh, which I don't have all the details of that at my fingertips, but um, there's something about the relationship between, you know, sort of consciousness and uh, ha having a thought and being conscious of the thought and remembering the thought. Um, there's a kind of multiplicity within ourselves in the way that we think, right? I know something and I know I'm, and, and I'm, and I know I know it, um, the way in which I'm kind of self-conscious, um, like all, all of these, all, Augustine uses these, these sort of faculties of mind, um, as ways of talking about how you can have logical distinction between, but even a kind of relationship between entities that are also, um, essentially unified. Um, so I, 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 I feel, I feel like what she's doing is taking that Augustine psychology approach to the Trinity and turning it onto creative psychology specifically. Because all these, all of these things she says can happen inside the mind of an artist without ever a pen touching paper. Right. Right. Um, in this, in the same way that you can, you know, you can draft a sentence without typing it, without writing it, without speaking it. Um, you can go through that process of taking that idea and, pu and putting form into it inside your own head. And you can look at that sentence and go, mm, that's a savory phrase without it ever touching your tongue. Right. Which is, which is what she means when she says that it doesn't need to be materialized, but it wants to be materialized. So once you, once you have constructed that sentence in your mind, it, it wants to be spoken or it wants to be written down. Which is why you have to be careful what sorts of sentences you construct when you're fantasizing about telling people off, because once it's <laughs> once it's created, it wants to be materialized. Yeah, I mean, I think I think she's uh, in the way that she talks about creativity and the Trinity. I think she sees she sees a real logical, um, uh, if not quite necessity, but certainly a strong logical. Uh, link and coherence and fitness between the role of the sun word in creation and that it is the sun, the word who, who is made flesh and dwells among us. Um, I think she sees a really, really strong connection between the, those two, uh, those two fac those two faculties of the sun or the word in John one. And, and she and she relates them, I think, logically in this way. I will say this. I, I you know, I, I find it of questionable uh, aid in understanding art. Uh, going the opposite way, if you're trying to understand the Trinity through this analogy, I don't see how it's illuminating at all. But I don't think that's what she's after anyway. Not necessarily. But those are the pieces that you sort of need to have in your head in order for this towards a Christian aesthetic to work. Well, let me run something by you guys. I mean, what I hear in this argument, uh, certainly, I mean, those Augustinian echoes are there. But I also hear some, some Kant coming through uh, to where, you know, there is this uh, 
logically necessary but not susceptible to conceptualization, uh, which is, I mean, pretty much, you know, Kant's notion of God in, in the critique of pure reason. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that that very strong um, inaccessibility of the, and I, I can't remember which phrase it was, creative idea, I mean, has some has some Kantian flavor to it in addition to the ancient flavor. I mean, did you guys pick that up or am I, am I imposing that on her argument? Um, I, I couldn't tell you the last time I, I, I read up on, I, I read Kant. Um, I, so he's, he's that, that's not a connection that I would have been prepared to make, but, um, I mean, I will, I believe you, you know, that it's there. I mean, now that you kind of say it that way, um, I mean that 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 makes sense. Um, I mean she does she does explicitly say, and she believes that when she says it, she's saying things that are there in creedal conciliar Trinitarian theology that that the that the the father knows himself through looking through beholding his image in the son. Um, so, so if, if that's, if that's Kantian, um, the, the, in, then she, she seems to be saying that, that God is in some sense, that, that the father is in some sense inaccessible even to himself, or to say it another way, um, the son is in some sense the self-knowledge of the father. Okay, and here, here's where I'll, I'll confess some gaps in my uh, patristics knowledge, but I mean, does it come to be, and I, I'm, I'm saying conventionally, not, not as a dismissal, but just the way that people talk, right? Does it come to be conventional to, re, to regard every theophany as the act of the son rather than the act of the father in patristic theology? Uh, I think there's some that go that way, but, um, I mean, one of the other dicta of, of patristic theology is that, um, the external, uh, that the, that the, that the acts of the Trinity are, uh, are undivided. So, you know, uh, one particular theologian, um, who talks a lot about the Trinity, Fred Sanders. Um, he, in, in some of the stuff that I've read from him, he says that um, associating theophanies exclusively with the Son um, doesn't do justice to the idea that the acts of the Trinity are, are undivided and, and that the, and, and it takes away from the uniqueness of the incarnation. Um, that's, I mean, that being said, to me, but I, I I don't know about the I don't I I can't tell you about the patristic witness on that. Okay, I got you because I mean I know and again this is my my gappy education speaking here, <laughs> but I know that I've seen some people say that you know the father is inherently not susceptible to experience, and then they explain various voices from heaven and you know walking with God in gardens and so on and so forth as you know well that's the son not the father. Is that, Interesting. Is that, yeah. Interesting. So, so like I said, I mean, I hear that kind of tendency, uh, 
in Sayers' argument, but I'll, I'll grant that, you know, this is probably more a function of, you know, I should have read more patristics back in seminary and, you know, laid off the biblical studies. <laughs> I, I, you know, that, that may be one of the entailments and she may actually go that way. Um, I, I, I didn't ask any questions about it, but one of the things I, um, uh, I appreciate about her image of God essay is that she, she has this sort of sidetrack where she talks about, um, analogies and metaphors yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that. And uh, basically, don't be afraid of them, but also don't push them further than is really useful. Yeah, I got gotcha, you, um, I got gotcha. you. And, 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 you know, th- this concern of mine isn't by any means at the core of her argument. It's just something that it's a rabbit trail I wanted to follow for a minute or two. <laughs> I just feel like uh, making these analogies to the Trinity never gets anywhere, anyone anywhere except in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I, I do. I do think it's interesting though that she is trying to say, if we are in the image of God, who is the particular sort of God that with whom Christianity has to do, and does that make a difference to the way, uh, the the image functions? Um, I find that interesting, but I, I, I guess this is this is one of those cases where. Um, has she crossed the line from "Don't be afraid of the na- the analogy, get as much as you can out of it" into "And we've we've ridden that analogy farther than it can actually go." Fortunately, there's nobody in God's green world who would use the mind of the Maker as a way of understanding the Trinity. It, like it, it's a weird analogy because it seems like you already understand the Trinity, which of course nobody does. Um, so here you can use that to understand this thing that seems much closer to us. How how art works, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's 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 better to say. This isn't a way of helping make sense of God. Um, you already need to have those concepts there. But what if what if it can help us think of art more Christianly? But the problem, I mean, the way analogy works is is it assumes you're closer to one thing and it explains that uh, it explains something else by means of that one thing. But I suspect most of us have a better grip on how artistic creation works than we do on the Trinity. So it's like she's trying to move from the far term to the near. <laughs> So like who's who is this target audience that she's speaking to? Yeah, which is why I say I, I called it cutesy, which I think is probably I mean it's demeaning, but I think that's the I think that's the the right word for this. Like it's an interesting exercise, but I don't really know how illuminative it is. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe people other people find this really helpful. I know that book is very popular. But of all well, the things I read I th- read through for that interview with Carol Vanderhoof, that this was the the part that interested me the least. The, the stuff I was least convinced by. Interesting. And this, this is the thing that interests me most, but I think it's mostly because I trust Dorothy Sayers as a thinker and she invests so much time into thinking through this that I sort of keep coming back to it and trying to figure out what she's, what she's getting out of it. 
Does that does does that make sense? Do you have any thinkers that are like that for you? Yeah, I, I do, and actually, I I can agree with that with her, and I I usually find her so interesting and illuminating that I'm frustrated that I don't find this interesting and illuminating. So, we, during the interview with Vanderhoof, I tried to give Sayers the benefit of the doubt and say I didn't understand it, but I'm increasingly I think I do understand it, and I just don't find it all that effective. But I'm you know I'm willing Fair to enough. be wrong. I mean, obviously Sayers is more erudite and intelligent than I am, so it's not it's not that. I just I don't know. Okay, well, let's chase it further and see if we can see see if we can mine it and interact and come up with something useful, or um, just decide we want to find another theory of aesthetics. Well, Sayer's story of Western aesthetics in her essay toward a Christian aesthetic is dominated by Plato. And Nathan, I know that you have had feelings about Plato stories in the past. So what, according to Plato, uh, to Sayers, is Plato's understanding of art, and what does she say he gets wrong? And do you think she has a point? Well, Sayers is mainly concerned with Plato's suspicion of the mimetic. Uh, so mimesis is a uh, Greek noun. It's really a, a participle, if you will, uh, that means reflection. Uh, so this is the notion that uh, the main activity of the artist uh, is to mirror something. And you get variations on this, of course, on a, a very literal level. Uh, if you've got kings running around stabbing each other with spears uh, in a poem, it's because there have been kings running around stabbing people with spears out in the world, and one uh, basically corresponds to the other. In more sophisticated versions of it, uh, you can talk about the mimesis of the soul. So in other words, the structure of the uh, poetic line, the structure of the metaphorical image, uh, the structure of the, the narrative movement uh, are a mirror of sorts into human experience more broadly. Uh, this is an understanding of art that persists at least as far as Dante because when he uh, praises the sculpture uh, on the terrace of the prideful uh, in Purgatorio, and I can't remember what canto number that is, uh, one of the things that, you know, the, the narrative voice says is that these are, this is art that is even better than nature. Uh, so the idea is that the best art mirrors nature, but this actually transcends that. So it's some kind of super art, if you will. Uh, now she also does spend some time on, uh, Plato's suspicion that, you know, the tragedies, especially in Athens and the comedies in their own way, uh, fuel and uh, ignite the kinds of emotions that are least helpful to a community uh, so that people are not taking things seriously that should be taking that should be taken seriously that people aren't taking their responsibility seriously because they watch these tragedies and merely weep the inevitability of it all uh, and her take on all of this uh, is that because Plato is still ultimately a pagan in some passages and at most a Unitarian in other passages uh, that he ultimately lacks the chops uh, to get to a real Trinitarian aesthetic. And we're going to discuss what it would mean to have a Trinitarian aesthetic later. Uh, I think that she gets Plato basically right. Uh, you know, I, I, I do wish that so many people, not just Sayers, but a lot of people who write about Plato uh, would do a little bit more with the little wink at the end of that section of the Republic. 
Uh, Michael and I have talked about this a little bit that, you know, in, in some ways, Plato comes back in the dialogue, the laws, and sort of finishes the job that the Republic does and says that ultimately uh, philosophical dialectic is doing the educational work that art was supposed to do. Uh, that still doesn't, you know, answer the question, you know, if philosophy is doing the education, is there something else that art could do that philosophy doesn't do well? Uh, so like I said, I mean, uh, and this is probably, you know, 20 years of Derrida talking, but I wish you would focus more on the aporias within Plato and treat him a little bit less as a closed system. But that's really a matter of a, you know, a pre-Derrida and a post-Derrida reading of Plato than it is, you know, anything that I would blame Sayers for. Do you, um, do you hold out in Plato the idea that there's anything philosophy can do, can't do that's worth doing? I think that he leaves open that possibility, yes. And like I said, I mean, the main reason for that is that that passage doesn't end with, you know, thus concludes the matter, but it ends with Socrates saying, I wish someone would come along and make a case for this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and grant that is Derrida talking. I am looking for aporias when I read Plato. Uh, other people are looking for other things when they read Plato, so... Uh, but I think it's more fun to read that way. But I mean, the, the irony with Plato is always that he is himself a poet, right? I mean, of all philosophers, right. he's he's the one who is the closest to being a poet. And uh, I was I was reading uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, I think, uh, for for class a couple of weeks ago, and I, I I had forgotten that Aristotle. Maybe it's the Metaphysics. He he calls the uh, he calls the forms good poetry. <laughs> Oh, I had forgotten that. That's good. Oh, that's man, good. talk about twisting the knife. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's cool. what's fun about Plato, right? He writes uh, these wonderful dramatic characters like Thrasymachus and Glaucon in order to critique the production of dramatic characters. Yeah. And he writes a text called the Phaedrus to critique the production of texts. Right. So sometimes sometimes when Derrida makes that move and, and turns the text in on itself, it's tedious and, and stretching. But with, with Plato... I don't know when you when it's you have in there. A, when you have a written when you have a written book about how writing is terrible. You gotta. It, it's amazing that it took somebody. It took until 1968 or whenever for for somebody to perform that particular operation. Oh, I think Richard Weaver was doing it in the 50s. Now, do you think it's fair though to say that even if Sayers is not maybe not representing the fullness of Plato, that she is accurately capturing one of the main ways in which Plato was received. Oh, sure, Absolutely. sure, sure. I mean, that's, that's uh, Richard Rorty's famous line, right? Uh, Plato was a singular philosophical genius. Platonists are morons. <laughs> All right. Well, she develops her Christian aesthetic from that quirky Trinity thing, Michael. So what does she say that her Christian aesthetic can do that Plato's merely pagan Unitarian aesthetic can't. I actually really like this. I know I complained about her Trinitarian stuff earlier, but I think when it comes down to her actual on-the-ground aesthetic, I'm into it. So she says, first of all, art is not mere mimesis. Art is bigger, not smaller than the thing it supposedly represents. Um, and, and Christianity is innovative in this because it sees art as a creation rather than as mimesis or techne. Techne is the Greek for technique. Am I, am I right? It's, it's a craft type of thing. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is the skill. making of things. Uh, so human creation is an echo of divine creation, and and God has the advantage of creating ex nihilo, but the human artist creates out of the materials of the universe, even though because there's an idea, there are creative ideas involved, it's beyond just the materials of the universe. Artistic creation in her aesthetics is about imaging forth, that's the phrase she uses, bringing images forward. Uh, and it, as such, it's it's about experience, but it's not really exactly the record of experience. The experience is contained within the work of art itself. And I think what she's getting at is the old Archibald MacLeish line, a poem should not mean but be, or what, uh, yeah. what uh, what's his name, Cleanth Brooks calls the heresy of paraphrase. The idea that what a poem says is the poem itself. It's not something that can be boiled down to a sentence. Um, and I, so I think that's what she's saying, too, that the, the experience goes into the poem, but you can't boil the poem down to the experience. The experience is the poem. It's contained within the poem. And the reason for that is that true experience involves expression, even if it's just to oneself. So she, she distinguishes between the event, which is something that happens, and the experience, which is our expression of that thing that happens. And in that sense, we're all poets. And it's just that the person we think of as a poet is particularly expressive so instead of just just expressing the event to himself as experience he's able to express that event to the world and have everybody understand it as experience or at least a lot of people uh this this leads us to uh, her particular view of uh of truth in art and i'm just going to quote her at length here when we read the poem or see the play or picture or hear the music, it is as though a light were turned on inside us. We say, ah, I recognize that. That is something which I obscurely felt to be going on in and about me, but I didn't know what it was and I couldn't express it. But now that the artist has made its image, imaged it forth for me, I can possess and take hold of it and make it my own and turn it into a source of knowledge and truth. So art reveals the truth, but it also kind of creates the truth, if that makes sense. It gives expression to something that you you felt vaguely and could not previously express. And in that sense, it's also yep. always revealing new truth. It's new knowledge of ourselves. It's not telling us things we already know, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Instead, it's it's revealing ourselves to ourselves. It's it's revelatory. It's it's apocalyptic. It's uncovering. Yeah. What do you think, Nathan? Uh, what I appreciate most about Sayers here is her influence on further uh, theological aesthetics, uh, and especially that of John Milbank. Uh, one of the things that he does is he takes uh, Sayers' point here and he historicizes it further. So the first thing uh, that he notes is that, you know, mimesis theory doesn't go away uh, with St. Paul, uh, but it sticks around, you know, I mean, like so many things. Uh, Christianity is learning how to be Christian as the history of the church unfolds, right? Uh, but what he says is, uh, again, just nuancing Sayers' point here, is that mimesis doesn't immediately give way to creativity, but there's a period in between there of expression to where uh, it's not mirroring, as in mimesis, it's not mirroring nature, it's not mirroring the soul, but it is expressing, so the metaphor shifts from a mirror to a signet ring. Uh, it is pressing the self, the individuality, into the wax of the universe, whether in language or in paint. And he says it's really not until the Romantic era 
that we get uh, the full development of what Christian theology should have gotten to, uh, namely that art actually brings a novum into the world, something that didn't exist before. Uh, so he says that, you know, the, the real tragedy is that about the time the Romantics were able to articulate creativity as the nature of art, long about that time, philosophy got so hidebound that it ceased to be able to be creative itself. Uh, so, you know, that, that's one of his uh, big cre uh, critiques of modern philosophy. Uh, I will say, and this is just a pet peeve, that uh, I do blame Sayers here, not because she intended this, but because objectively she had this effect. Uh, the use of image as a verb has crept into pop theology so much that it sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. And it gave way to the even more barbaric uh, verbal form of body, so that people talk about the incarnation as the bodying forth of God. That just bugs the crap out of me. But that's a side note. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's not like she didn't, she didn't, she doesn't make up the word image. Right? No, but she uses it as a verb. Oh yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And like I said, there's no way she could have known that she would give way to so many emergent church books, but she did. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I like it too. I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear you thinking, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you, you, you appreciate it. Um, Michael, especially cause you know, I, I, I know the, the, the ideas that she's building off of as she, as she communicates this, um, are, are, are odd. And I'm not even entirely sure whether I always think they're accurate or, or even helpful, um, but the place that she goes with it is interesting and, and the, and I think useful and the, the way that she sees Trinitarian Christianity does something different with the idea of, with, with the image than, than the received Platonism does. The image is always going to be on the wrong side of the divide of reality for Plato in the, or at least the received Platonism. But in Trinitarianism, um, the image is part of the ultimate. The image of the ultimate is one with the ultimate. And that makes, and, and she sees this as that this, this means that we can think in, in art about art in entirely different productive, positive, um, fruitful ways. Um, oh yeah. And you know, David, I mean that trajectory, uh, you know, really has borne fruit over the last 30 years or so in David Bentley Hart and, you know, John Milbank and Catherine Pickstock and Graham Ward. And, you know, that, that constellation of, of theology that gets called radical orthodoxy, right? I mean, it really is, uh, you know, reimagining theology with orthodox roots, radical, uh, rather than, you know, starting with, um, you know, platonic, you could say, but really Kantian starting points. And then, you know, seeing what, what space remains, you know, where we can still do theology. Radical orthodoxy does what Sayers is doing here, continues her work, I would argue, and says, no, let's not begin with Kant. Let's begin with Augustine. Or Chalcedon. Indeed. Or Gregory of Nyssa. Pick one. Yeah. You just called Dorothy Sayers radical orthodox. 
I don't know how I feel. I, I, I think she's a forebear of them. I think she's a forebear. Huh. Gonna have to think on that one. Well, one of the reasons that Sayers develops this Christian aesthetic is so that she can ground her judgment that both he, both what she calls hedonistic entertainment and moralizing propaganda, that neither of those are proper art. So how does her critique of those two categories work, Nathan? Yeah, I enjoyed this section as well. And like I said, I mean, I, I like how this unfolds into a very intellectually robust critique of so much that's going on in, you know, mid 20th century art that she sees. And certainly uh, we haven't stopped since then. So uh, entertainment. Well, actually, let me start with, you know, what Michael was saying earlier. Uh, true art, you know, conceived within this, you know, Trinitarian framework uh, causes recognition, which is itself an Aristotelian uh, appropriation. We shouldn't skip over that. I mean, for Aristotle, the moment of recognition is really what makes a tragedy a tragedy. But she takes it into this Trinitarian framework and says that this uh, moment of recognition in which the spectator or the audience uh, experiences a truth that they wouldn't have come up with on their own except they were in the presence of the artwork. This is what real art does. Entertainment, on the other hand, uh, gives people what they already know and what they already want and what they already know that they want. Uh, so or already I mean, think they know, right? I mean, because sometimes that's yeah. false knowledge. Oh, certainly. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I meant no in the uh, doxa sense, not in the... Uh, Oh, crud, what's the, what's the opposite of doxa in Plato? At any rate, I'll think of it later. The point <laughs> is uh, that entertainment uh, simply caters and panders uh, to what the audience was already thinking. So uh, I won't give examples here. Listeners, you can think about the art that most uh, panders to the political party that you like the least. That's what she's talking about, okay? Uh, on the other hand, um, propaganda... Uh, and actually I, I slid into propaganda there, uh, is telling people what they need uh, without expecting the people to discover it within their own frame of experience. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is, again, uh, not necessarily the stuff that people say, you know, this person got destroyed, uh, but it is the, you need to see this, this is such an important message kind of art in scare quotes. Yeah. Uh, this Come is on, give the, us an example, Nathan. Oh, I mean, the listeners already know. I mean, but I'll, I'll go ahead and go to my favorite, you know, uh, I don't even know, my favorite negative exemplar. I'll make it neutral, right? Uh, and for me, that is The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, it is obviously well-crafted. Uh, the characters, you know, are interesting enough. But from the first page of that novel, in fact, if you read the preface, before the first page of that novel... Uh, there are no political surprises. Uh, you're not going to encounter any characters that uh, make you say, huh, I didn't expect that. Uh, everything in that novel, as I remember it, and listeners, the last time I read it was a good 12 years ago, so uh, for all I know, I might have just been a shallow reader of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, a but shallow young 38-year-old. Say, hey, watch <laughs> it, watch it. <laughs> listeners, I am not 50. But <laughs> the point is uh, that, you know, this particular piece of art, you know, again, doesn't really have the effect of recognition. I didn't, you know, come away from that novel saying, I really need to dwell on this some. Likewise, if you go to the other end, 
uh, but with a lot less artistic or technical merit, uh, a film like God's Not Dead. Uh, now, as I wrote on ChristianHumanist.org, you can go back and find it, uh, I was actually disappointed in this movie in a way that I didn't expect to be disappointed because you only get disappointed if you expect something. Uh, and <laughs> as this movie unfolded, I came to realize that there are all these places where there are aporias and there are sloppinesses in the narrative to where they really could have done some interesting things, but then they didn't. Uh, so, you know, not only was it a terrible movie, but it was actually disappointing, uh, you know, which was terrible. Um, do, you, do you think boringness is part of the, what, what she calls moral spellbinding works, the, that second category? I mean, do, oh, do, do, you, do you think boring, boring could, could just be a across the board condemnation of that? I think it could be, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Stan Hauerwas's, uh aphorism that the great sin of the modern church is to take Jesus and make him boring. Which is something Sayers yeah. also says in the, the dogma is the doctrine. Oh, he probably the, stole it from her. The doctrine is the drama. The dogma is the drama. It's one of those. Very good. Very good. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, Stanley Hauerwas himself says that if I ever fool myself into thinking I had an original thought, it's because I forgot where I read it. Well, one of the places, though, where propaganda isn't boring uh, is when it indulges in... Um, is when it indulges your passions uh, in ways that are that are kind of propagandist wish fulfillment, right? When the villain that you know you want to be the villain gets the comeuppance that you think is deserved for them, yeah. And that teach and it teaches it teaches you nothing, and it and it that's where the propaganda can kind of edge over into the hedonism. Yeah, yeah I was, so I was going to say the bullet time slow mo of Hercules getting hit by a car at the end of uh, God's Not Dead. I, I was going to say yeah. that there's a huge overlap between these two things that she doesn't really talk about. I was thinking about, like, Pearl Harbor or a, a similar jingoistic Michael Bay movie, which is both gives you the image of yourself as an American that you imagine yourself to be, you know, this heroic, freedom-loving American, and tries to make this ham-fisted, ethical, political statement that, you know just reinforces everything you already believe. So I, I think, I think there's a huge and productive overlap between hedonistic entertainment and moral spellbinding. It doesn't produce yeah. anything good, but it's productive. <laughs> it does something. It's not a good something, but it does something. Well, and the thing, the thing you're talking about, about it whipping you up. And, and so you, you enjoy your indignation. I mean, that's bad for your soul. And I, you know, everybody loved that Mad Max Fury Road. Did you guys see that movie? I haven't seen that one or Pearl Harbor, so keep rolling, Michael. Well, I, I watched it, um, and um, I I was really horrified with the way I felt at the end of that movie, which is I wanted I wanted this man's head to be torn off, uh, and I I just I I think that's not a great emotion to to rile up in a in a person, you know, and it, it's not like he was some sort of easy political caricature it's not it's 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 not quite that bad but it does encourage you to to want the violent death of a person and that uh i don't i don't love that which so i guess is, is a problem the, is with all latent, action movies is that the latent platonism you were referring to earlier michael the latent platonism yeah so i mean there's still this fear that you know uh art can in fact you know stir up the wrong sorts of emotions but of course it can the the idea that 
if if art has the power to do good things, it has to have the power to do bad things. And so, I mean, the dodge she would make is to say that what we're talking about is not really art. Right? I mean, that that's that's the response here. Well, that, you're not talking about art. You're talking about entertainment or you're talking about propaganda. And maybe maybe Plato's error is not recognizing there's a third category. Uh, but... If if it's going to be powerful, it has to be powerful in both directions. If it's going to be a pharmacon, it's got to be cure and poison. Right, right. I mean, That's it sounds like a, a no true Scotsman argument. Well, I mean, when you talk about um, the anger and so forth, um, and this is this is something that's uh, that the propagandists will avail themselves of, but it doesn't mean that it, that that there's not necessarily a true use. Um, there are things worth being furious about. Um, but I think we too readily sort of take our own moral compass and say that opposite thing, that's the thing that I'm going to be furious about in the most visceral, tangible ways that I can, that I can think of, um, which is where we get you know, political revenge set fantasies of all sorts. Right. Right. Listeners, uh, two episodes ago, we talked about this at length. This is why I liked my favorite Marvel movie was Captain America's Civil War, because it, it takes everything you've invested in superhero movies up to that point. Right. And it, it tells you you were wrong to hope for violence. And I, I really find that tremendous. I don't know that that, that movie is art, but it certainly goes beyond the two uh, debased categories that Sayers has recognized here. Cause I mean, it's entertaining, but it, it, it's giving you an image of yourself that you don't want because you know, you're, you're rooting for uh, revenge or, or what have you. And it's certainly not moral spellbinding because I think the, the, the end of that movie is so ambiguous that it's difficult to see it as propaganda for anything. So, but Michael, couldn't we say the same about the uh, DC movies? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) If Danny Anderson were here, you could. Yeah. Well, I'll go ahead and go on the record and say I think the MCU movies, I mean, all, what are we up to now, 36 years of them? Uh, I think think that they do qualify as art. I really do. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, if you look at the kind of public that was consuming dickens novels 150 years ago um i mean i don't think it's that much different from the public that's consuming marvel movies now i guess it'd be more like 180 years ago i'm not good with math there's certainly a step above mere entertainment i'm I'm certainly comfortable saying that i mean they they certainly have something to say and it's not a simple thing to say and they they do it with with beauty and style sometimes yeah there's certainly things we can critique about them and we should uh, but I think to, you know, make the strong distinction between, you know, uh, popular entertainment and, you know, real art with a capital R and a capital A, and to put these films on the bad side of that divide is, is missing something that's going on uh, with that franchise. The Dwight McDonald reader in me just cannot quite join you on that side of the river, Nathan. Say a little bit more. Oh, Dwight McDonald has an essay called Mass Cult and Mid Cult where he talks about um he talks about true art and folk art, which are on one side, that's the real art, and then mass culture on the other side. And mid culture, which is probably what the, the Marvel movies would be. 
because uh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to go. It's a hundred and fifteen page essay that I, I I have often thought about assigning to you guys to talk about, but uh, I feel bad about giving you something quite that long. <laughs> right on. Doesn't it just graduate and become a book at that point? Yeah, it's a small book. All right. Well, I'd like to end this episode, which we, we kind of need to. We're running up against time. Uh, by suggesting some work of art, works of art that we think, in Sayers' terms, are proper art and not just idolatrous entertainment or propaganda. So, Michael, you're up first. What would you pitch? I was thinking about the paintings of El Greco, who is a 16th century Greek-Spanish uh, painter. And his, his works are realistic, but not quite realistic. He has these strange, elongated figures and odd colors. And the, the effect is really uncanny. But when, when I think about her saying that a true work of art is more than the thing it's attempting to represent, I think you definitely get that. There is, a, there is an undefinable spiritual quality that's added to these figures that uh, would not be there if they were strictly realistic. And I don't really like realistic art that much. So the fact that I like anybody from the 16th century is pretty uh, unusual. But El Greco, his his paintings are very, uh, very interesting in that respect. It's it's funny, though, he, he always claimed that he was only painting what he sees. And uh, recently, there was, I read some article saying that, uh, well, you know, actually, he, he had some sort of vision disorder. And, uh, and, and how aggravating, how aggravating that reading of El Greco's bizarre paintings are. Oh, you know, he, he really didn't have any kind of vision. He was just uh, he was just doing photorealism. It's just that his camera was messed up. Dumb. Yeah, let's not Very. pathologize El Greco. That's evil. Yeah, I, I want to hold up a uh, a John Up Updike novel uh, just because I figured Michael wouldn't go that direction. Uh, In the Beauty of the Lilies is a, a ninety six novel of uh, Updike's, and the recognition that Sayers was talking about really strikes me in, in that piece because uh, in a series of episodes, and really it's a, a novel over the course of that uh, tells a story of four generations within a family, but within each generation, uh, the main character, the focal character, uh, becomes just despicable in a way that, you know, John Updike is so skillful at making characters that you hate, but then reverses it on you and makes you realize that everything that they do that is despicable, they do it for reasons that are entirely intelligible uh, in the terms of your experience, the reader. Uh, so again, you know, it is a, a reflection on sin, which I think that Updike does about as well as any novelist, uh, in a way that uh, brings truth. And, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking of when I read this uh, Towards a Christian Aesthetic essay. Excellent. Well, lately, uh, I teach, uh, I've been teaching, um, you know, just the second composition course, which at HBU is basically a, uh, a writing about literature class. And I had my students read, uh, the little Wendell Berry poem on the piece, uh, the piece of wild things. And going back and, and reviewing these essays by Sayers, uh, I kept thinking about that poem and the way that it, um, the way that it represented experience, uh, in a different, in a different light. Um, the poem itself describes, 
uh, an insomniac father overwhelmed by anxieties about the future, basically going out and lying next to a duck pond and watching birds to deal with it. But the poem, um, just the metaphors, the allusions, just the fine, the fine details of the diction, um, completely reframe, reframe what that experience is. Um, if you just said, this is a poem about an insomniac lying next to a duck pond, um, you would you would have completely missed what that experience was. Um, and all of the ways that she talks about um, art being, uh, art giving you back your experience with, uh, with a new revelation of what that experience even was. Um, I feel like that, that, that poem is... Uh, is is an example of that sort of thing, and looking at other 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 poems of Wendell Berry as well. Um, he often writes about very mundane things, like looking out a window and uh, seeing presumably his wife picking strawberries. And the poem is like four or five lines long. It's called "They," and it just completely reimagines what the relationship between him and, and the, the person that he sees and their past and their future is in just those few little lines, which are mostly pronouns. And yeah, that that's doing the kind of thing that Sayers talks about, and it's amazing stuff. I recommend it. Well, Nathan, uh, you are up next week. What are we doing then? We are going to be talking about uh, Malcolm X's speech, uh, The Ballot or the Bullet. Oh, wow. Well, I look forward to that, dear listeners. Uh, if you have any uh, comments on this episode, if you have... Uh, uh, well, I, I don't know that we can do any better at explaining Sayers' Trinity, Trinitarian ideas to you, but um, maybe you can explain it to us. Uh, if you have... Any other suggestions for uh, proper art that, that folks need to consider doing the sorts of things that Sayers talks about? Um, well, we would welcome all that feedback, and you can post it on the show notes uh, on our blog, christianhumanist.org, when they post there. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can post them on the Facebook page when, uh, when the episode uh, shows up there as well. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, uh, the host of this week of the Christian, uh, Christian Humanist Podcast, a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I leave you now with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>